Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm Father Mitch Packle, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we study the Holy Bible through the lens of the ancient tradition that comes to us from Christ through his apostles and from the apostles to their disciples. That's what we mean by sacred tradition. Now, we love to have you participate in the show. You can do what the nice people in this studio audience have done, be here part of our live studio audience. Or you can call during the live program, which is Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And if you are in North America, the number you can call is 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. Or outside North America, you still call in, but the number is country code 1, area code 205, 2712980. You can also send us questions and comments by email by writing to scripture and tradition at ewtn.com or follow us and participate with the show on YouTube. Today we will look at the agony Christ suffered during his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane and how his father sent an angel who responded to strengthen him. We'll also explore some of the reasons many people neglect or even avoid a serious prayer life. Now, we are continuing through my book, Wheat and Tares, Restoring the Moral Vision of a Scandalized Church which you can get at EWTN's religious catalog. Just go to EWTNRC.com where it is item number 81098. 81098. Today we are starting our discussion at the bottom of page 82 if you are following in that book. And this is the chapter about Gethsemane, the Garden of the Apostles' Failures. Now, we'd like to begin with Luke 22, verse 43, where St. Luke wrote, And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. This is very much the counterpoint to our Lord's prayer that we talked about last week when he asked his father to take away the cup of pain and suffering. The father didn't. The pain and the difficulty were still there. But the father did send the angel to comfort him. And notice how our Lord had wanted some of that comfort and encouragement from his apostles. He'd hoped to receive it from them. Um, but they were having a little trouble staying awake. They kept falling asleep. And this strength that came to him from the angel helped him very much, as it says in verse 44. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. 
and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Now, this is a very, an indication of very great strain. This is uh, an awful thing. And it mentions here that he was experiencing this interior agony. In Greek, this is agonia. And it's important to note that the angel did not take away the suffering. Rather, it stayed. But this is something that he still has this agony. And the word agon in Greek is the word for an athletic stadium. It's where they would do their sporting events. And those days, uh, it would be running, uh, various discus and javelin throwing, wrestling, things like that. Uh, the, the Greeks have been very, very big on, uh, you know, sports. And it was a, a sacred event for them. They would hold them at various uh, Olympics, uh, celebrating every four years at Mount Olympus, the home of the gods in their mythology. But they also had other religious games every few years, like at Corinth, they'd have the Isthmian games and so on. So they would have this, uh, you know, place, the Algon, and the struggle that the athletes endured. I mean, these were struggles that were, you know, very serious because there was a lot at stake. The honor of your city. Uh, people did not belong to a country called Greece. They didn't think of themselves as belonging to some country. They belonged to a city and they were citizens of a city and they won honor for the city and if they were victorious in the games, they got great honor. And so they you know, fought really hard. The wrestling matches and boxing matches, the races, all of these were very serious. And they called those struggles agonia. That so it comes from what you do in the athletic stadium. That's agony, agonia. And this is something that's very much part of what they, they did. Um, sometimes, as in the Greek historian Herodotus, uh, oftentimes called the father of historians, the father of history, um, the agonia was also the kind of struggle in a law court. But then it also gets used for winning battles in war. For instance, in 2 Maccabees uh, chapter 15, verse 9, it talks about the agonia, the struggles that they had won in battles. So this word of agonia has a number of uses. They, by the way, the Jewish historian uh, Josephus also uses that in his Jewish wars and other places. This word characterizes what our Lord Jesus is going through in Gethsemane. It's the word that St. Luke uses for his 
agony. And we even call it in English when we pray the mystery, the first mystery of the rosary on Tuesdays today, the, the sorrowful mysteries, we talk about the mystery of the agony in the garden. But the agony comes from this world, word for struggle in sports, in battle, law courts, all of which are relevant because on one hand, the law court imagery is very helpful given that the Holy Spirit and Jesus are identified as a paraclete. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus is called the paraclete. And in John chapter 14 through 16, the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete. What does paraclete mean? Defense lawyer, counselor, as in counselor for the defense. Whereas the other word, diabolos, from which we get our English word devil or the Spanish word diablo, diabolos means prosecuting attorney. So Christ is in this struggle with the prosecuting attorney. This is Satan who, as the book of Revelation chapter 12 verse 10 says so wonderfully, he is the one who accuses our brethren day and night. And that Christ is in a struggle against Satan. He's also in a battle. The battle imagery is extremely appropriate because he's in a battle against the kingdom of evil and the kingdom of darkness, Satan's kingdom. And this struggle is very, very important. So in this struggle where he is fighting against God's great enemies, Satan, and death itself, that's part of the battle. It's over eternal life versus eternal death. This is the great struggle that we have. And he is under such agony in this such agonia in Greek, that he sweats blood. Now, this is actually something that does happen to people who are under tremendous stress. It's not the ordinary stress. It's, it's even beyond the stress of having just two more hours to finish your taxes on the 15th of April or something. It's great stress, great stress. And what this phenomenon is called hematidrosis, hematidrosis. This is where you are caused to sweat blood. Okay. And what happens is that the capillaries close to the skin rupture and blood comes out because of the stress. It's very rare, but it does happen. And this would be also something that would add to the process of bleeding profusely when our Lord is scourged and then later on when crowned with thorns and then crucified. So this hematosis, uh, hematidosis, I should say, is very much a, 
uh, a condition that made his suffering even worse, not only in Gethsemane, but later on when physical torture was added to this interior uh, agony. And I think it's important to see that this initial shedding of blood is on one hand connected with his words at the Eucharist when he gave them the cup of wine and said, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant, which is to be shed for you. Here he is shedding his blood in this uh, agony of uh, garden. And eventually it will get to the point where his heart will be even pierced by a spear and what little blood that he had left pours out mixed with water. Very important part of verses that we hear very frequently in scripture where we are to be washed in the blood of the lamb. We are to be washed in the blood of Christ, the lamb of God. And we are also required by him to drink of his blood as he commanded at the Eucharist and as he made so necessary for our ability to go to heaven when he taught about the Eucharist in John chapter 6. So all of this uh, has meaning in that context of spiritual, having a spiritual communion with him where we're washed in his blood, but also sacramental communion when we eat his body and drink his blood, the blood that was shed in order to remove the forgiveness, or to, to gain us the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is something that I think we can consider in regard to people who have gone through sexual abuse. There, one of the phenomena, because that, remember, that's the theme of this book. How do we work through the crisis that was caused in the church by the sexual abuse scandals that took place? Okay? And there are so many aspects of it. And throughout the book, especially this next three chapters, I will be discussing various ways in which specific aspects of suffering of people who've gone through this horrible experience can find that their suffering connects with the suffering of Christ. Here in the agony of the garden, one of the aspects that's very relevant is the fact that so many victims keep it to themselves for sometimes for years, sometimes 20, 25, 30 years. They won't tell people. They feel ashamed. They feel sometimes it's their own fault. Um, they uh, find it hard to explain to somebody else. They believe that people will blame them. And sometimes that happens. Again, we'll talk about that at a later point. But they, um, tend to blame themselves for having uh, been a victim. Not unusual among victims, 
by any means. And they also have anger at the person who abused them, but they don't know how to express it because oftentimes that person is not there and they, they, so they can't do anything about the anger. And sometimes they're angry at their parents for not protecting them from an abuser. And they're angry at the church for not preventing such a person from getting into a position of ministry. There's a lot of anger to go around uh, uh, for that. And then they also have a strong sense of shame in regard to any of the sexual components. Sexuality is uh, an element of human life that is filled with tremendous joy and great love. But when it is not in the context of a committed relationship, when it's outside of love, then it is prone to be an experience of shame. That's not unusual. Sometimes not at that very moment, often later on it is. And in the case of victims of sexual abuse, even though they are not responsible for causing the abuse, they still experience shame. And all of these different feelings go back and forth. They work in them in various levels. And they fear revealing what happened to them because they don't want to experience worse shame. They don't want to be blamed for it. And they don't want to be doubted. They want people to believe it when they say it. So these things hold them back. And as these experiences and feelings churn inside of them, they become more isolated. They don't go out to other people. Sometimes their relationships with their parents or siblings, even their friends, uh, their spouses, their own children, uh, all of those relationships can be impinged. This is not something that is to be treated lightly. And this, uh, these relationships with people they should love and do love and who love them can be affected negatively for many decades, it seems. And so with all this, these victims are living out their own agony on their own. They don't have support like our Lord who was isolated, he didn't get support from the apostles. And he is by himself. And these victims feel that isolation as they suffer through all of these different experiences and the memories and the, the confusion of emotions going on inside them. All that affects them very profoundly. And we have to pay close attention to that and care for them, but also they need to recognize that they are with Jesus in Gethsemane as they go through all that. We're going to take a little break now. We'll come back and continue on with this topic, so please stay with us. 
Thank you. Let's go back to this. I was starting to make a connection between those who have experienced various forms of abuse, finding their own interior turmoil, the, the interior struggles they have with various feelings of anger and shame and fear of not being believed and all these other issues. And again, sometimes it's not that they're creating this in their own minds. These can be real. I knew of uh, some victims whose parents didn't believe, they didn't want to believe that this could have happened to their child or from their friend uh, as the abuser. They, and, and so the young people just had to be quiet for extra years. And finally, somebody believed them. So this is something that can, can be there. But I think it's very important to not even let that isolation keep them away from Christ, but rather know that Christ entered into this very difficult agony in Gethsemane. He entered into this knowledge that one of his chosen 12 apostles, whom he had just ordained a priest and bishop, was coming to betray him fairly soon and that the other disciples were going to run away and he was going to be left alone. And he wanted their support in the midst of his agony, his struggle. And they fell asleep as many people have experienced. This is, and by the way, this is not only for people who are undergoing uh, difficulties from having been abused. There are a lot of other situations when relationships are broken, when one spouse leaves another, when children reject parents or parents reject children when there are other circumstances of breaking friendships. Lots of situations have people in this kind of agony. And no matter what the cause of that lonely isolation and turmoil of emotion might be, and no matter what kind of dread you may experience, it is also very important to come meet Christ. Don't stay in a private Gethsemane, but come meet Christ. And know that He invites you to meet with Him at a level of mutual suffering. He enters into understanding your pain from inside the pain. This is an extremely important part of meditating on the passion of Christ, on the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary. 
when we look and meditate upon the suffering and death of Jesus in the Gospels. And it's important to note, our Lord Jesus will not force you into your Gethsemane, into your place of agony. He won't force himself. He depends on you inviting him. If you've ever noticed, there's a famous painting where it says, uh, it's a quote from the book of Revelation, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And Jesus is standing at a door and knocking on the door. He's knocking on the door of our hearts. But a friend of mine who's just, he's been mid-60s and loves that painting. It's been part of his life. I said, did you ever notice that the door does not have a door handle or doorknob on the outside. He was astounded. He had never looked that close. He just assumed there was one. But I said, look again. Because there is no doorknob or latch or door handle on the outside of the door of our heart. It is always from the inside. We can let Christ in or not. But the door latch is on the inside of the door. He will knock. He'll be persistent. But it's up to us to open. And it's something that we can then also learn that if we open up to him in our agony, again, it's another mistake. Say, well, I'll get my life straightened out. I'll have everything, you know, fixed. No, you won't. No, you won't. You're going to need Christ to fix what's going on. You need the real Jesus. This is one of my strong criticisms of a lot of 12-step programs. I I think the 12-step program is fantastic. But the criticism I would make is that so many practitioners of it think that, you know, it's, well, since it says there, God as you conceive him, they think they have to go and make up some God, some image of God. No, your duty is to find the real God. Just as you don't want to be identified by something you're not? Which one of us would, would say, yes, I'd like to be considered a mass murdering fiend who you know, lurks around trying to kill as many people as possible? Would you want people to say that about you? Would you like that image of you? Presumably not, especially if you're not one, and even if you are one. There are a lot of people in prison who've done some bad things who try to deny that they did those things. Rather, I think to realize that just as I don't want to be redefined as something I'm not, 
neither does God want us to identify him as something he is not. What does God say about himself? That's one of the reasons we come to the sacred scriptures. This is why we come to Holy Mass, which is based on the scriptures. The prayers are all derived from the word of God. And we want to receive God and invite him on his terms as who he is. And if we recognize that, I want the real Jesus Christ to come into me, he'll kneel down next to me like he did at the rock of agony. And he will be with me in the, my own rocks of agony, in my own places of pain. He will be there and he will love us in the midst of the pain, not start to love us once we overcome all our difficulties. That's not the way it works. He loves us while we're still in the midst of the difficulties and the pain. And he meets us there as one who understands what pain was like and suffering was like. This is something that we see him weeping for us, sweating blood for us. And as we suffer and weep for our own difficulties, we can see that he identifies himself with us as the least of his brothers and sisters. He truly sees that whatever you've done to the least of my brothers and sisters, you've done to me. Why does he say that in Matthew 25? Because he identifies himself with the least of the brethren. And so it's very important to take all of our sufferings our betrayed brothers and sisters, the people who've gone through abuse and so many other issues, and to encourage them to invite Jesus into the gardens of their own suffering, their own agonies that they experience in life so that they can find healing and comfort from Jesus. Jesus, our Lord, received comfort from an angel. If we invite our Lord into our lives, we can find comfort from him himself. This is one of the things, and even if it may be difficult for some of the victims to come to Holy Mass, the goal of that is not to make priests feel good about anything. It's rather to come closer to Jesus and to invite Jesus into your life in that very important way. And that's going to be what's key. Okay. All right. Well, let's stop there. We'll begin uh, how what, about talking next week about the things our Lord said to his disciples who had fallen asleep. Now he has to wake them up. What I'd like to do is take a look at some of the questions you've been sending us, okay? So let's start off, first of all, with Tad. Tad in West Haven, Connecticut 
wrote, uh, Father Mitch, I have recently decided to try and pray the divine office, either uh, morning or evening prayer to start. I currently cannot afford purchase of all four volumes. In the meantime, I have two apps on my phone that I reference, iBrevery and the Divine Office, but I feel like I am not praying it correctly. What is the invitatory? And do I begin with this? It says to use this uh, when it is the first hour of the day. Any tips on helping a beginner pray this correctly? would be appreciated as I make myself anxious about what I'm do, uh, truly praying this correctly. Pat, first of all, this is required for priests and religious, but for the laity, it's not a requirement, but it is a strong invitation. And I am delighted that you are starting to say the office this is a very good thing. It's the official prayer book of the Roman Rite of the Church. The other uh, churches have their own divine liturgy uh, books, and they, they follow them. Um, but this is uh, the Roman Rite one. So that's something that uh, I would encourage you to do. Now, the invitatory, what they mean by the first hour of the day, they don't mean at midnight or at one in the morning. That's not what they're talking about. What they're talking about is that you pray that the, when you first start your office. Now, what is the invitatory? It begins with a verse, and that usually is given, oftentimes for a season, and then there are four invitatory psalms and you say the verse and then a stanza of the psalm and then repeat the verse and do the next stanza and so on. So these would be Psalm 95. Uh, that's uh, kind of the default, you know, uh, invitatory psalm. And there's Psalm 100, uh, Psalm uh, 24, and the, the last one, 95, 24, um, I forget the last one, uh, 100, but there's a fourth one. And you can use any one of those. Um, you, you have your freedom to you choose any one of those. And you just say that psalm. One of the reasons I don't remember it so well is that I've been praying the Maronite Liturgy of the Hours and Maronite Church doesn't have exactly the invitatory, but it has a psalm of the week. So they change that every week. Uh, it was kind of cool, though, because uh, by uh, doing the, oh, I think it's Psalm 67. That's the fourth one. I was able to um, memorize those. I used to pray my office in Hebrew, and I memorized them. And when I had my Hebrew comprehensive exams, um, I got one of the most frequently used psalms in the office as the psalm I had to translate. So I aced that part of the test. That was good. Uh, so, but yeah, d definitely pray that. And you really will come to love praying the psalms, Tad. I encourage that strongly. 
Oh, we have a caller. Uh, Carol, you're calling from the great state of Mississippi. <laughs> what can yes, we do for you today? <laughs> well, I just want to thank you for your book, Wheat and Tears. Um, we have been watching EWTN now for, oh gosh, months. But I purchased your book and I have been watching on Tuesdays. And it is such a gift, and I wanted you to know how much a gift it is because it, um, I've been away from the church uh, as well as my husband for maybe quite a few years. Um, um, one of our family members was a victim of abuse, of yeah. clergy sex abuse as a nine-year-old in reconciliation. And he... Uh, Stuffed that down for 10 years, and yep. I found out about it when he was 19. And so we've been having many years of agony. Yes. And yes. a lot of parishioners and a lot of people maybe in your audience won't understand this. But um, I, we went to the bishop and vicar general, and they listened, and pretty much... I did not get much. Um, so when I heard you talking about it, that you wrote this book about it, I was just kind of shocked because you had addressed the issue. And it is so important because it is global. I educated myself. This is a global problem, not just in the States. And yeah, it's very unfortunate. But this is the reality of today that we have to fix it and it has to be talked about. Exactly. No, and it's, it's a global problem. It's a problem even, it's actually even worse outside the you know, clergy and church. The, 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 the amount of abuse of children that is still going on in the world in general, especially with human trafficking. And if you saw that wonderful, powerful, powerful movie, not one from sense of happy, but in the powerful movie, Sound of Freedom, you, you know, see how this is huge business. And we see that there is a tremendous amount of abuse going on in schools and in homes, especially where there are uh, multiple, there have been multiple uh, spouses involved in a family or multiple boyfriends usually. Uh, these are real situations. And th this is a hurt. It's in the, it's within the church, it's, it's a greater sense of betrayal. There, there's no doubt. No doubt. But it, it, what happened among the clergy is one part, one piece of a puzzle of a sexually gluttonous society that wants to excuse their own behavior. Uh, they'll only go after bad behavior of their enemies because they're enemies not because they have a principle that the behavior is wrong. And meanwhile, this stuff is all playing out. 
young people are suffering terrible, terrible abuse. And it's affects them for a long time. We need Christ to give us principles for good behavior and how to follow his commandments. We need Christ to give us the grace to really seek the good of other people. That's what love is about. Not how I feel, but that I want what is the true good of the other. And I give myself and not take from them. And then we also have to deal with the effects of hurt, of the abuse. And Christ enters into that and meets people at each stage of the pain. Thank you for your comments. I really appreciate that. And I hope that all of us will be agents of trying to bring healing. Let Christ use us to bring healing to our society. I'm going to take another break. We'll come back in a couple of minutes, so please stay with us. get back to uh, questions and emails and such, I want to mention that uh, I'd like you to join me tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for EWTN Live, when we'll be speaking with Mike Aquilina, a frequent guest, great scholar, and he's going to discuss contributions of early African saints, martyrs, and writers to Christianity. The Africans had tremendous impact on the early church all the way till today. So we'll discuss some of that, okay? All right, let's go to our studio audience. We have a question from them. Sir, where are you from? I'm from Janesville, California. Good to have you, good to have you. And what, you. what can we do for you today? I'd like to know where the doxology came from on the Lord's Prayer. And you know the, the part that says, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory? Yes. This has been part of the liturgy in the Eastern Church, especially for many centuries. I don't know if it had been in the Roman Church on the Roman Rite. I, I don't know. It may have been, but uh, it certainly wasn't part of the liturgy about was part of mass uh, but going back before Vatican II. But in the Eastern churches, both the Oriental and the Byzantine churches, it was. So when in the Byzantine churches and Oriental churches, whenever they said the Our Father, especially in during liturgy, uh, whether uh, divine liturgy or the praying of the liturgy of the hours, the office, they had immediately attached to the Our Father 
for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory now and forever. This has always been part of their liturgy and still is, still is. So in the Maronite rite, Chaldean rite, Byzantine, it's, see it there. Now, this came into the scripture, especially in the King James Bible, because of a manuscript problem. The King James Bible was translated from what's called the Textus Receptus, the received text. This was a Greek manuscript of the Bible that had been brought from Constantinople after the city fell to the Turks. I believe that was 1453. And it came, the monks and priests and bishops and nobles grabbed as many manuscripts as they could find because they assumed that the Turks would not be particularly friendly to Christian literature. So they uh, brought them to the West. And that was one of many factors in the growth of the Renaissance. And this manuscript was treated as, an, oh, wow, we have a Greek manuscript that we can use. And they started translating that. Now, in fact, it was a damaged text. The text um, did not have the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. They had been torn, you know, when bringing it over. So they went to the Latin, translated into Greek, and then translated into English. Um, but the problem with that manuscript is this. It is a 12th century copy. And it has that doxology in it after the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 5. And it was a copyist's error that the monk who had made that copy in the 1100s AD had, was so accustomed, you know, you know how it is when you say a prayer and you just go on automatic pilot, something that they wish they could have found a lot more about that airplane they've lost in the Carolinas. <laughs> Anybody have any news on the plane, let the government know. But, uh, but we go on automatic pilot, you know, uh, when we do it. And he just added that in as he was writing. Well, that's, the problem is none of the early manuscripts have the doxology in the New Testament. Again, it was imported from the mass in, by a copyist, but it, it's not in any of the early manuscripts. For instance, uh, Codex Vaticanus Beta um, is from 325 AD, it doesn't have it, and Codex Alexandrinus in Alexandria, Egypt, doesn't have it, that's also about 325, and Codex Sinaiticus, also in the early 300s, it doesn't have it. None of these manuscripts have it, uh, nor other papyri. It's, it's only in that text. So it's a copyist's error.
Okay, it's, but it's beautiful, and we use it in the liturgy, and we do so uh, getting that from the Eastern churches. Uh, and so it's a good practice to be reminded of and include from the Eastern churches, okay? And then we have an email here from Ed. Father Mitch, I'm not sure if it's a sin, but maybe a disrespect for the Holy Sacrament of the altar. But at a recent mass, I noticed an entire family entered their pew without genuflecting towards the real presence in the tabernacle. The scripture readings touched upon calling out someone else for their sin. I want it so bad to go over and say something rather than just battling my scowling eye at them, batting my scowling eye at them. How should I have dealt better dealt with this situation? Certainly my own tendency to miss an occasional mass here or there doesn't give me any authority. Should I only worry about my own piety, Ed? Well, first of all, you should worry about getting to mass on Sunday because uh, that made it to the top 10 hit parade of God's favorite 10 commandments. So you want to you make sure that you get to Mass on Sunday. And if you miss uh, on purpose, not for some other reason, but if you miss on purpose uh, with no good cause, then you, um, you know, should go to confession. Uh, as far as them not genuflecting, what I would do is first of all, get to know that, that family. They become friends with them. Don't, don't scold them at this point. It may be that they are from one of the Eastern churches. And in the Eastern churches, we don't genuflect before going into a pew. That's how I can always tell when we have Roman Rite visitors at St. Elias Parish that they genuflect. But then it's also how you can tell the Catholics going to a movie theater. That some of them genuflect when they go into the... That's another problem. So, uh, you know, this is, but, you know, so it could just be that it's not disrespect at all, but just following a custom, or it could be that they don't, were never taught. Remember, in the last 50, 60 years, there's not been a lot of poor catechesis. So look for a way to do that while showing them respect. Okay. Um, then let me get this other email here from Susan. Hi, Father Paquin. John 6, verse, 30, verse 65, it states, For this reason I have told that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. Susan's question is, are there people the Father does not call to come to Jesus? Well, no. That's, that's, there are, no one is excluded by the Father. How do we know that? Where's that in scripture? I would urge you to take a look at the second letter to Timothy, chapter 2. When St. Paul talks to Timothy there about Jesus as the mediator to God, he goes before that and says, God wills that all men be saved. God wills all people to be saved. There's nobody excluded in the word all. So this is our starting point. That passage was taken outside the context of sacred scripture by John Calvin because he, well, mostly his disciples taught that, you know, uh, God 
predestined some people to heaven and others he predestines to hell. We don't believe that because scripture says the opposite. God wills all men to be saved. And that's why St. Jesus says the mediator between God and man. So this is what we believe, what we preach, and what we take for granted as we go out and seek to evangelize everybody, everybody. But we have run out of time, so may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and lead you in all of your ways by his peace. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. And again, remember to keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill because this network belongs to you and without your support, we cannot keep going. So please do that. That's how Lord inspired Mother Angelica to keep us going. God bless you all and thank you. Thank you.